Hello, everyone. I'm Trent Luce. Welcome to another Red Shirt Friday edition of Roll Routes, the program where we gather every day at this time. John Bowen, we do it Monday through Friday anyway. And what we do when we gather is continue to address the issues between rural and urban America. Many Fridays have come and gone. No John Bowen. He's simply hard to get a hold of. Now you go through his agent and three steps of carbon paper later. <laughs> We can track him down. Right. Coming to us from the greater half of Indiana, that being south Mm -hmm. of I-70. That's right. 22 years. 28 years, U.S. Marshal. (laughs) You just keep keep adding the the years. You're going to be exceeding my age. It's not going to be possible. People are going to be fact-checking it. Twitter's going to be throwing something out saying, no, false. He's not even that old. (laughs) <laughs> 49 years john bowen represented oh, the u.s man, marshals right. yep that's well, right they hired me when i was a year old who retires I had to be potty who retires after 20 years you're just getting things figured out at 20 years and you got to yeah. go up and retire from law enforcement what's wrong with you i know i wish it could be called an official retirement because i'd have a pension but i have about 12 more years to work before i can even draw social security i'd uh I have a tiny little pension fund from one of my jobs at the state, mm. and uh, I don't even know how that's going to work because I didn't. I'm not fully vested or anything. I I went from department to department um, in the in the law enforcement world. That's called a gypsy cop. I everybody you know they label you because you don't stay with one department. You don't have that loyalty of twenty, thirty, forty years on one department. Well. I got bored and I wanted more money, so I would go to a different department. And every time I gained more experience and, and bettered myself. So call me a gypsy if you will. I don't care. And hey. I and I bailed before full retirement, so whatever. It's all right. <laughs> Is this gypsy with or without his beard at the moment? Stubble. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. It, uh, it's summer stubble. Yeah. And and do you watch? Cop shows on TV? No. I wondered no, if, I, I if just... somebody who has <laughs> actually been there done that. If you because they're on every night. If you sit down and you need an hour to just chill, you know, right? They're on, they're on every people. Night. People ask me that a lot, and I. There was one that was based on a U.S. marshal. Um, I don't remember what it was, what the name of it was. Now people used to really enjoy that, and they would ask me if I watched it and. Uh, then and then there was the reality show, you know, the actual U.S. Marshals, the Fugitive Task Force guys. Now those guys I could relate to. That was yeah. that was very realistic. The things that they did, they of course they didn't a lot of stuff they didn't show, like some of the ways that we would track fugitives and things, obviously. But um, but I, you know, I I didn't even watch that because I lived yeah. it. So what? It's no, I didn't, it's no secret how you track fugitives. You just get a really good bloodhound like Old Red and go out there and go. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, you're right, Trent. That's it. That's how we do it. <laughs> there is one cop yep. show that I absolutely love. What's that? Blue Bloods. Oh, I thought you were going to say Andy Griffith. Well, yeah, that, that one too. By the way, did you know Andy I, Griffith? I only have four channels. Because we just have an antenna. We're like old school an antenna. And mm-hmm. one of my channels is, I think it's MeTV, maybe it's called. Andy Griffith's on there yeah. every day. I can watch Don Knox yeah. every day. I know. I know it. 
I love it. I've seen every episode multiple times. I love it. Can't get enough. Um, that, that's, so that's the only cop show. See, you caught me. That's the only one I, I watch. Now I will, I like the old Western, you know, Wyatt Earp shows. Yeah. By the way, there's still there's still a descendant of Wyatt Earp working for the U.S. Marshals. I think he worked. Last I heard, he was working out of the D.C. office. But he's he's a direct descendant. Get him on uh, well next Friday. Call him and get him on with us. I don't know. I don't think I have that kind of pull. <laughs> you call out there and just ask for it. I'll what give do, you the D.C. office. What do you so I can do that. What do you, what don't you want the I, U.S. Marshals in D.C. to know? <laughs> I don't have that kind of leverage, man. I was nothing. I'll make a I was phone a call. Force. That's all I, I was a task force officer that just it, laid low. It was called a jet under the radar. I know where it had been there done that. I know it. Yeah. All right. So There's while that. we're here and we've had our fun and frivolity, whatever that word is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, what do you make of, of the goings on in? Minnesota. I know that a, a gentleman lost his life unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't believe anything I read, so consequently, I don't know what the press is saying. I just know right. that cops shot a guy who was doing a lot of great work. And that leads into, we hear a lot about police brutality. And Bob Golden, a friend of mine from California, earlier this morning made a great post. He said there are good law enforcement they're bad law enforcement. We never hear about the good ones. We hear all about the bad ones. But I don't even know, is this bad one? How do you sort all of that out, John? And where does you, that fall into police brutality? What's all this about? Well, first of all, you said shot. But I think you're referring to the individual that was killed because someone was kneeling on his neck um, in Minneapolis. Yes. Um, he, uh, <clears throat> first of all, um, to lend some credibility to what I'm about to say, I my entire career, I was a law enforcement instructor. The mm-hmm. entire my entire career, um, and I specialized in police use of force. I was a what's called a the old day, in the old days it was called defensive tactics instructor. Then they changed everything evolves in law enforcement or should evolve. Um, as times change and as people become more and more educated. So it, they changed the name from defensive tactics because for various reasons, I won't get into that part of it, but they changed it to physical tactics. And then it, it even morphed into survival tactics. Um, so I, I was a survival tactic, physical tactics instructor my entire career. I was a ground fighting instructor my entire career. And at the near the end of my career, I was a tactical knife instructor offensive and defensive knife instructor and um along with that was the physiological aspects of police use of force the effects it has on police officers the the effects it has on on their body uh, mentally and physically and um a wide range of of topics and in the old days again there was there was something called the force continuum the police uh, use of force continuum and there was a, a great instructor at the Indiana Law Enforcement Academy. I won't mention him because I don't have his permission to. Mm-hmm. He's a good friend of mine. But he he developed a program called the um, Force Control Matrix uh, that was something different from the use of force continuum. The use of force continuum had a tiered or stepped 
approach to the amount of force that a police officer would use um, compare, comparing to the uh, amount of resistance that you encountered. Right. And it didn't really it didn't really consider all, everything that should be considered. It was kind of a canned approach, and it didn't really offer a de-escalation portion. So the threat control matrix, um, I don't know what I called it a minute ago, but it, the, the actual name was the threat control matrix that the instructor from the Indiana Law Enforcement Academy created, um, incorporated a lot of those things that needed to be incorporated in, the, in police use force. All of that being said, the head and the neck of of, a, of an individual was always something that a, that an instructor would would use would spend a lot of time on talking about when you can and when you cannot strike or anything the neck or the head, and it had to be very close to or deadly a deadly force situation first of all you would never strike anyone in the head unless it was a deadly force situation never um that that was something that was taught to law enforcement recruits in the academy and all throughout their career if they had a good instructor the neck there were a lot of neck holds that you just i'll, I'll call them by a, a layman term choke holds neck holds um, but there was those, those things evolved throughout the years because there were people dying. There were people getting their tracheas crushed. And so they, they developed a neck hold called an LVNR, the lateral vascular neck restraint. The lateral vascular neck restraint was deployed in a way that you protected the trachea. The trachea would end up in the in your el- inner elbow area, mm-hmm. and it would give space there um, when you were deploying that hold. That hold was was intended to restrict blood flow, not airflow. And part of the instruction of that, a lot of times, students and instructors, a lot of instructors, um, including myself, would be rendered unconscious to experience. We are going to render unconscious for. <laughs> like two minutes. Roll out. Red Shirt Friday, John Bowen. More after this. Quickly reminding how to empower yourself with information about the rigorous science on nutrition that should be included in our dietary guidelines. Go to nutritioncoalition.us. The time is of essence. Get it done. Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Lewis alongside John Bowen pulling on his 49 year service in U.S. Marshals. What was it, 17? 49 years. It was 17, yes. That's the accurate number. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I, I had, and I'll say this, I had, I've mentioned this before, but I've had, I had a wonderful law enforcement career. I, I was very fortunate to hire in during what I call the old school period of law enforcement back in the, early 90s 1989 was actually the year i started and there were a lot of the old school cops still around at that time that were nearing the end of their careers and and you're talking about guys that were uh vietnam vets and some of them even world war ii vets that were 
still yeah. hanging around in law enforcement and just good, good guys, good mentors, good trainers. Uh, but you know, on the topic of use of force, this, you know, this not, this topic isn't a time for joking. I'm not joking or making light of anything, but I, I have to say, I, I want to mention a couple of things that the way thing to kind of pinpoint the way things have changed or highlight the way mm-hmm. things have changed over the years and the attitudes towards use of force had a very good old mentor that had actually two full law enforcement careers after being a world war II, he was a world war II photographer and he he actually rode in the belly the, the glass mm. globe part under the i don't know all the terms for it, uh, under a bomber yeah and and he was a photographer so he was a target in this glass ball under the plane mm. as a photographer and do you know that was um, one of the largest casualties in world war ii for our our guys was uh, not something, something would not go right when they landed that big old beast and that person in mm. that little bubble. Because the only way into that bubble was from the bottom, so they couldn't like go up into the cargo area. I oh learned this gosh. at this uh, SAC Museum, Strategic Air Command Museum, between Lincoln and Omaha. Wow. And they said the number of individuals that got killed landing those planes down in that bubble was unbelievable. And those men knew that going into Absolutely. it. I can't, I, I can't fathom the nerves of steel and the patriotism involved in that. It's, it's just, un, I can't comprehend it. But this guy was hilarious. He was just a great guy. His name was Bob Gay. He's been, he passed away several years ago. But Bob was um, worked at the Martinsville, Indiana Police Department and had a full career there, retired, and then went to the Morgan County Sheriff's Department and worked within the jail division for another full career. In fact, he was still working there when he got sick and passed away. But he used to talk about, I I would have conversations with all these old guys because I was just like a sponge who wanted to learn and know everything. And and I was very interested in police use of force and the way that it changed. And he, he said that it was nothing for them to go through several boxes of shotgun shells back in the day just firing warning shots (laughs) it's funny i I laugh at it it's funny now because the way that he told the story he said he said yeah i said if somebody ran he said we and this was pre-tennessee versus garner tennessee versus garner was the the case law that created the um that changed things where you could not shoot a fleeing felon you know back pre-tennessee v garner back in the 60s if a felon was running officers had they could just shoot them mm-hmm. and um bob said he said if somebody ran we i'd get my shotgun out he said i always had it right in front of the car with me i'd get it out and he said and he'd say quote he'd say blammo <laughs> he'd fire around <laughs> over their head he was funny he was a funny guy but it, you know he said we'd fire around over their head, and he said he said they'd do one of two things: they'd drop to the ground, or they'd just run faster. <laughs> he said yeah. they, but but anyway, that being said, you know things have changed, and very very much needed change. And we're in a world now where law enforcement officers are moving targets. They're they're um, if they're in uniform, they're in a marked car. I mean, they, they're they're life is they're just targets and we have you know the the body cameras now and the the car cameras and which i think is very important it's it's needed there there's no reason now in the the day of this day of technology that there shouldn't be a body cam on every police officer 
They, funding is not an excuse anymore. Don't give me that garbage that you can't come up with the money uh, to put body cameras on officers. I'm not buying it. There, there should be accountability now. And, you know, here's the thing. I, I've had, obviously, I've had this conversation with multiple people since this stuff has been going on and, and people writing over this. And when you give someone, a, uh, when someone is put in a position of power, their character traits are magnified, good or bad. If you put a good man in a position of power, then he's going to continue to be a good man. He's going to use that position of power for better, to better those around him, to protect and serve his community, and just to be a good person and, and to take care of people. You put a, I got to be careful because I, I get, I'm getting, I get angry about this stuff. You put somebody in a position of power that's a masochist, that has, that's a bully, um, that's power hungry, and that's a, that's a, a disgusting narcissist. They're going those, those traits are going to be magnified as well. And when you couple that with supervisors and fellow officers that stand by and watch, then you've created the perfect monster. You've created a psychopath with a badge. There's no excuse from what now I'll add this. Of course, all I saw was the video. Mm -hmm. I don't know any details about this other than seeing the video that everyone else saw, but I will tell you that under no circumstances, no circumstances, period, would you take a handcuffed man and put your knee or anything on his neck for even a second? I, I, there's no circumstance for that. And for that man to stand, to, to, to kneel on that, that man's neck and for a prolonged period of time when the man is begging him, telling him he can't breathe, I just can't even imagine. Uh, well, I, I also know the heat of the moment, John. But yeah, every yeah. police officer today has to know that there's a camera somewhere on you. How do you mentally allow yourself to do what you just described, which I did not see the video. Right. Because, right. Uh, again, I, I just don't know what to believe, what not to believe. Uh, but how do you allow yourself to do that? Knowing in 2020, pretty much everything you do as a police officer is going to show up somewhere on somebody's phone or on a uh, chest cam, whatever you call that, a webcam. Yeah, body cam. Body yeah. cam. How do you do mm -hmm. that? Well, and here's the thing, too. You shouldn't have to. I mean, this goes without saying, but I'm going to say it. You shouldn't even have to. You shouldn't even have to consider the fact that you might be captured on video. You just shouldn't be doing it, period. But you're right. There's the cameras. But here's the thing. A again, if this this is what I'm reading and seeing and hearing in the media, so I'll add that. This individual, according to media records and what they have obtained from the department, this individual was had been complained on multiple times. Mm -hmm. I, I heard a figure of 14 times. I heard a figure of 18 times. He's a 19-year veteran. He's been getting by with this. He's been doing this. People don't just at the end of a, at the at, at a 19 year mark in a law enforcement career, they don't just start acting this way. It's not a random thing that this man would do this. He's been doing this his entire career, the majority of it. He's been getting by with it. 
citizens have been lodging complaints against him, and his supervisors and his fellow officers have allowed it to continue. And it's 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 very sad. It's very sad. It's upsetting when when there's so many. And this is the part that really enrages me, Trent. You know how I feel about law enforcement officers and the brotherhood there. The good ones are going to pay for this. The good police officers are going to pay for this individual's actions. There will be more and more police officers targeted. There will be more and more police officers killed and mistreated because of this individual's actions. And there will be good men and, and women deterred from joining the police force from going to right. law law academy, law enforcement academy, because of it, it's a perfect storm. And I, I, you know, of course, the the big obvious thing here that we're talking about law enforcement, we're talking about my expertise on this topic. So we've stayed on that. But I, I want to say before I go any further, this man lost his life. Yeah, I mean, his his trial it, is is over. He's just yeah. guilty. Roll route. Halfway through. Veteran. 17 years. U.S. Marshal. John Bolin. More after this. And now we're talking beef. I'm talking about tender beef. Certified Piedmontese creates opportunities. Actually, it's Lone Creek Cattle Company that creates the opportunity for you as a cattleman to produce certified Piedmontese beef. That means that we've had the test. We know that the myostatin gene is present in the cattle that you produce because you use Piedmontese genetics from Lone Creek. Consequently, you get paid properly. I'm talking about $180 premium over market for the calves that you produce in the fall, assuming you calve in the spring. Get details about how it all works and how it might benefit your bottom line at www.LoneCreekCattleCo.com. Welcome back to Roll Route. John Bowen on a Red Shirt Friday. The last Red Shirt Friday of May, because he hasn't been around for May. Um, while we're talking about unscrupulous law enforcement officials, have you seen the stand at Paxton County? There's a corrupt sheriff in that deal, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was an honor to be there at the screening. Um, for that in South Dakota, uh, thanks to you and Protect the Harvest, I was able to go out there and be Have a part of that. Have you watched it on Netflix? I haven't yet. I haven't, right. but I've been I've been sharing it with everybody else. That okay. I don't have a Netflix account. I don't oh, have that. All right. Well, that's, that's a good job. I don't have a very good inter- internet connection. Hey, what if I, I told you that Andy Griffith's show with Barney Fife was on Netflix? Would you get it? <laughs> Maybe. It, you know, it, I, I, it, I find it intriguing, John Bullen, that you, I know the area, era that you were inspired for your career. Most guys in our era were inspired by Tom Cruise and Top Gun to join the Air Force. You, on the other hand, were inspired by Barney Fife to be yeah, law enforcement. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. I'm. I'm, I was built about like Barney back in those days too. <laughs> I I was a very wait a minute. A What's changed? I know what you look like. You know what? Nothing's changed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's kind of what it uh, what inspired me to get into um, the physical tactics instructor thing because I knew I was 
a, a little guy, um, yeah. and I, I knew I needed to learn how to defend myself. Or somebody thumped me real good out here in the in the countryside of rural Indiana. I pull over the wrong guy, and he thumped me and cuffed me to my car. So I, yeah. I, I had to learn to. Now, honestly, though, I mean, it was, it was just about communicating with people and treating them d- decently. You didn't have to fight with. Once in a while, you had to fight with a guy that was just so drunk out of his mind that he was going to fight no matter what. But I, I could, I could use communication and respect, and and not have to fight with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, so Wyatt Earp did. It, yeah, I mean, why would I want to? Um, okay, so back to this conversation, which I think is vital, because I don't want to sensationalize this, but aren't we at a pretty pivotal time in respect for law enforcement, and, and we're all putting every law enforcement official at risk for the uh, bad actions of a few? And then if they agree with that, what do we do about it? Wow. But what a what a intense, complex question. Um, I'll tell you, this is this is my opinion. What I saw, and I, I I will say this: that I I took a hiatus from law enforcement, um, an eight year gap in my law enforcement career, because I was young, married, and having kids, and couldn't afford to pay to make ends meet on a, on a police officer's salary. So I. I left and went into the uh, into a factory. I worked for Chrysler for eight years in a foundry, and I, when I came back with it, that foundry closed. This is interesting too. I mean, for kind of the way things are happening now, American-made and, and etc. But the foundry closed and, and moved operations to Tijuana, Mexico, and I was. 35 years old, 34, 35 years old when that happened and didn't know what I was going to do for work. Uh, Chrysler offered me a relocation and I didn't want to do it. I had deep roots in Indiana where I was, where I still am. And so I, I did the only thing that I knew and I went back and started inquiring about getting back into law enforcement. And I was very fortunate that some of those individuals that I had worked with were in positions of power at that time. And, uh, the chief at Martinsville police department and he hired me, he rehired me and brought me back. And, and after I'd gone through all the, you know, the testing and everything and they hired me, he, he called me one day and he said, how bad do you want this job? And I thought he was just teasing messing with me. I said, well, I need it. I want the job pretty bad, Chief. I don't have anything to do, nowhere to work. And he said, do you want it bad enough to go back through the academy? And I said, well, that's what it takes. I've been through the, the law enforcement academy once. So I'll go through again. And I, the law enforcement training board in Indiana had just recently, about a year prior to this happening, had changed rules where you had to go back through the entire academy if you were out for a certain period of time. Which is a great thing. It was a good idea because a lot of times people, you know, police officers will take a break and go try something and come back and just go right back without being recertified and brought up to speed on things. So I said all that to say this. The first time I went through the law enforcement academy, it was very much like what I've been told um, boot camp is like. 
very strict, very rigorous um, training. They didn't put up with anything. And these were old school instructors there, too, at the time. Um, the second time that I went through, I was blown away by how lax it was. Now, what are the reasons for that? I don't know. I don't know unless it, it's part of that difficulty in recruiting that you mentioned earlier. They can't find people that are willing to tolerate that kind of rigorous training. Um, things are getting softer in the discipline. Things were getting softer in, you know, the, the rooms that we stayed in were like college dorm rooms compared to the way it was before. It was just like a military barracks. Um, I think that's part of the problem. I think that we have gotten away in law enforcement from the strict discipline that needs to be instilled in police officers. I may have some police officer friends, you know, if they listen to this, they, they may get a hold of me and tell me I'm full of it, but I don't care. This is my opinion. This is what I've seen firsthand. They're, they, there's such a need for police officers and massive numbers of police officers, major gaps right now. There, a lot of the big departments are, you know, hundreds of police officers short. And they just can't get men and women that are willing to do the job for the pay, for the risk, for the disrespect that the, the general public has for them these days. Um, it's all it's all goes hand in hand. It's a big reciprocal um, cause and effect, for lack of a better way of saying it, that um, has brought us to where we are in law enforcement and, and the way that the public perceives law enforcement, the way that law enforcement perceives the public. We've gotten away from the, the community policing. They've tried, they've tried for decades now to bring the community policing aspect of law enforcement back into it. Um, you know, I was fortunate when I was a young deputy to, to work in a rural community. I could pull my squad car up on the side of the road and, and hop on the fender of a tractor with a farmer and, and talk and visit and ride across the field with him to, you know, if he had a complaint about somebody trespassing or whatever it was, and I couldn't get back to where he wanted to show me somebody vandalized his barn or somebody shot up the side of his barn with a shotgun or something. And I could jump on the tractor and ride back with him in my uniform and look at it and talk to him. And, um, I don't, I think we've gotten away from that personal contact. People see, mm -hmm heavily armored police vehicles rolling down the road. They see, and I'm not saying that that stuff's not needed. But. Yeah, but let's just go there for a moment because my mm -hmm. firsthand experience with this was when I was in Oregon, uh, which ultimately led to the murder by police officers, excuse me, law enforcement of Lavoie Fenicum. But mm -hmm. aside from that, I saw all of that wartime, warlike strategic equipment rolling up in this little community that had no purpose for using this type of armored tanks and things that they were using, M M3 wraps or whatever they were called. Mm -hmm. But I, I think at some, I honestly believe, John, that, you know, that all came kind of like from surplus stuff from the federal government and made it available to these local communities. I don't think that's an accident. I, I think it's part of 
some of the individuals within the federal government that want people in outside to live in fear. Am I wrong? I'm not going to say you're wrong. Um, I, I do understand the aspect of from being you know in that world. I understand the aspect that a that police officers need to have equal um, or better means to defend themselves, protect themselves in the public. But I, I do think that there's a fine line there. Obviously, a lot of this stemmed from train. A lot of it stemmed from a an FBI um, armed shootout. Years ago in L.A., I believe, it was bank robbers that were heavily armored. Um, you might recall seeing some of the videos years ago. Um, FBI just were, were responding to a bank robbery or had been following these bank robbers. I'm not sure exactly what it, the situation was there leading up to it. But these bank robbers came out of the bank with full body armor on and, and, and automatic weapons or semi-automatic weapons uh, M16, AR-15 type, um, I believe they were fully automatic. And law enforcement at that time had never encountered that, that type of a situation. And it really, it really um, startled the law enforcement community all across the country and started the push for um, supplying police officers with equal or better equipment mm-hmm. and in in the in that type of a situation, if that type of situation arose, that was the beginning of it, from my recollection. And yeah, I don't remember that 9/11, situation. Well, search it in uh, L.A. bank robbery, heavily armored individual, something like that. Mm-hmm. Google, you'll there's videos uh, all over the place. John, I have to go to our last break. We will pick it up right there because I I want to follow up on this. I think it's significant. Roll route, John Bolin, Red Shirt Friday. We have one segment left, and we'll do it after this. I want to quickly remind you now about Neogen. You know, I talk about the certified Piedmontese, and I talk about the myostatin gene. Well, there has to be a test to verify all of that is happening. We use Neogen to get that done. You look at the genomics. It is now all about genomics, whether we're talking people, pets, or pigs. And in this case, we're talking about beef cattle. But Neogen does all of the above. Go to Neogen.com because the bottom line is as we continue to move forward and we look at the efficiencies not only of production but providing the absolute essential nutrients possible, what are the genomics to make it happen? Even in your pets. Can you believe that? That's what people are doing? All right, get more details about uh, identifying what genomics are present at www.neogen.com. Welcome back to Roll Route. Trent Luce alongside John Boland, joining us from Indiana, retired U.S. Marshal. I got a feeling we're not even going to talk about your expertise in animal rights today. Well, probably not. But yeah. I, I will say this. I, I'm, I'm anxious to. I'm anxious to because well, you're just I saw you come back next Friday, aren't you? That's it. That's it. Yeah, I saw a fine. new ASPCA commercial featuring, featuring uh, Mr. Tim Rickey the CEO, I call him the CEO of the ASPCA. He's not, but he, he actually kind of pulls the strings there. Huh. He controls things, but okay. yeah. That, okay. We'll, we'll talk, talk about, about that. that later. Yeah. By the way, Tommy Carano was on this week. Did you catch that? No. Yeah. Wednesday. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go back to Oregon because this is my 
most close up and close personal interaction with law enforcement. And the, this situation that which started January 1st of uh, what year was it? Good grief. 2015, I think. Been a uh, while now. John, first five months of the year, it was my daily life. Every single day I was mm-hmm. here monitoring what was going on. And I 100% will argue to the end of the time that all of that heavy artillery, those MRAPs, whatever they're officially called, uh, look like tanks rolling around, had no purpose in Harney County, Oregon with the Malheur standoff other than creating the media image that they're dealing with a serious threat and we have to protect ourselves. It was all about image. Yeah. And so it made me wonder how much of everything that when when somebody is posed as a threat, how much of it is just grandstanding for the media so that people understand that law enforcement is out here trying to protect you from somebody very dangerous. Right. But there there is definitely a um, I, it, it's 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 hard to articulate for me, but it, there there's a situation where it's almost like getting ahead of whatever might happen in the and it, it, this goes for anything, I guess. You you want to get out ahead of what could possibly turn out to be something very ugly, and you want to try to put the image forth in the media that just what you said that that maybe this situation is is a lot worse than what it actually is or to justify your actions um so you you try to get out and put the put that plant that seed um to spin it in a direction that that is going to be beneficial to you in the end whatever the end game is mm-hmm. um the again de-escalation de-escalation i mean there there's got to be you can't just keep bringing the the more heavy equipment the more firepower the more um forceful you are especially in this day and age especially now more than ever the general public is going to push back against that they're they're just people are tired of excessive force people are tired of disrespect um this situation that that just happened there in minneapolis is going to have so far reaching it's going to change the face of law enforcement again Mm -hmm. in a in a bad way it seems to me that started with rodney king it did it did that that was one of many examples that just is heartbreaking and and really devastating to the law enforcement law enforcement community as a whole. There there's good, like I said, there's there's the majority of law enforcement professionals are great people, good people that want to do the right thing, that are going to work every day and, and hoping that they can change a life or, or protect a life or bridge some kind of a gap between law enforcement and the community. And this has set them back. It set them back, and it's put them in in more harm's way than they were already in. The I have a lot of things I would like to say about the individual that was kneeling on that man's neck, and I'm not going to say it on this show. But I will tell you that I would I would as would have as a law enforcement officer back in those in, back in the day, um, I would take great pleasure 
in handcuffing that man and taking him into, into custody for killing that, that man, for kneeling on his neck and killing him the way that he did. Um, I, I was involved in tracking and, and arresting some, some really nasty people, um, some murderers, some nasty people. And from what I've seen and from what I've heard of this individual, the way he treated that man, he is no better. And in fact, he's worse. When you're put in a position of power and you abuse that power to that extent, you're worse than some of the murders that I arrested. And mm-hmm. you're there. For those that you know, don't know, John is, was undercover in uh, organized crime. So I mean, at least their pride. In, I mean, they admit that they're criminals. They don't try to hide that. They just say like. I'm a criminal. You catch me if you can. This guy has a badge and is is a, a bad actor in the name of the law. I agree with you. That's worse. Yeah, yeah. And the uh, individuals that stood by and watched him um, should so, and so and will you, be held accountable. Are you? Um, yeah. If if he's not held accountable after this, Katie, bar the door. Mm-hmm. Not getting as much attention. But uh, another equally unjust situation where life was lost. Are you familiar with the the Maryland case of Duncan Lem? L-E-M-P. I'm not. I'm not familiar 20, with it now. 23-year-old, I believe, who was building a website, um, basically reminding people of the right to assemble, the Second Amendment, um, was a 3%er. And local law enforcement got, I don't know what this means, got a no-knock mm-hmm. warrant mm-hmm. Uh, based upon, this is their records, based upon an anonymous tip that he had illegal weapons. Mm-hmm. They went in and shot well, him in his bed. I, I'm not familiar with it. Shot him in his bed, well. killed him, and uh, shot his pregnant girlfriend next to him. I, I don't, I, oh, well, none gosh. of that makes any sense to me, John. Uh, makes me nauseous. Literally, make I just felt nauseous when you were telling me that. I'm going to research it and see. But I, um, a no-knock warrant, by the way, means just that. Uh, the Constitution has a provision where when you serve a search warrant, you have to knock and announce your presence as a law enforcement officer and give the individual inside the opportunity to come and open the door and allow you in before you do any damage. A no-knock warrant means that there is enough reason to believe that the individual inside is a, is enough of a danger or threat to law enforcement that that provision is removed and they can literally sneak up to the house and bust the door down you know it makes you it makes you wonder i mean i've, I've served both kinds of warrants obviously but it makes you wonder um how would you respond inside that home when you hear your door squinted mm-hmm. off the hinges i can tell you how i would Mm-hmm. There would be, there would be a fight, an ugly fight. If I hear my door coming off the hinges, yeah. And naturally, I, it was at like I understand a.m., which is apparently the time of the day to yeah. to do that kind of thing. Um, it, it is. It is. Well, I'd be curious to get your rendition of that because I, I likened it to what I saw. I, I came back when I went to Harney County after the Malheur standoff. I came back and I told people that. Uh, the federal government in this case is not going to stop until they kill somebody. They're going to make an example of somebody. And I even have a friend who told me 
you said it would be Lavoie Finnicum. The writing was on the wall. They were not going to quit until they made an example of somebody. All of these things leads us to, now we have three minutes. You failed to answer my previous question. This is where we're at. What do we do? It has to start. uh, It has to start from two directions, in my opinion. Uh, There's experts in this field that, that, study this stuff i don't know i call them experts i hate to even call anybody an expert but it's gonna have to start the top with with the president just like you know he he demanded investigation action in the minneapolis situation immediately um has to start from there and it's going to have to start from the ground from the grassroots from the small departments and totally revamping and and rethinking their approaches to things um and I, I have to say this too, Trent. Law enforcement departments are understaffed. They're hiring a lot of a lot of people that maybe they wouldn't hire if they weren't so understaffed. Um, being understaffed causes a lot of overtime. A lot of police officers are, are exhausted mentally and physically. Um, a lot of a lot of them are underpaid. They have to work two jobs. They don't get enough sleep that just it's a perfect storm and you know there there's a multi-pronged approach to, to fixing this that like i said before though there's been so there's been this push for a return to community policing as long as i was in law enforcement from the early 90s until i, I left in 2014 there was it's all we heard anytime there was an ethics class or a any kind of a in service training, you know, there was always talk about how do we bridge this gap? What do we do? So that that will tell you something that will help quote answer your question. <laughs> what is the answer? Isn't it ironic um, though, John? At a time when everybody's talking about more of a community based food production system, we're talking now about more of a community based law enforcement. The answer continues to be allowing too mm-hmm. much control at the federal government, do what the Constitution mm-hmm. says, and take all of this control back locally. Right. Right, absolutely. You nailed it right there. I think I think the answer to a lot of our problems, not just this topic we've discussed, but as you said, the food the food issues, everything goes back to community, small community roots. Small, mm-hmm. bring the, put the power back in the smaller communities, even break it down all the way into townships and Start where um, small communities have the ability to control, to, to protect themselves, to feed themselves, and, and that's going to that's going to end up just being a good thing for the entire country. You're right. When you here, are we out of time? Yeah, I'll give you thirty seconds. Okay, the the federal federal um, control over things is just like the national animal places the national animal rights places when they come into a to a community shake things up and then leave and take money with them when when the small humane societies could do a better job it's the same way with law enforcement let the local law enforcement control and handle now in the situation minneapolis there needs to be some oversight there when there's that kind of excessive use of force from an individual that's been complained on multiple times somebody needs to come in and investigate that outside of that department 
That'll do it. We have successfully journeyed down the road connecting rural and urban America. As always, my thanks to John Bowden. Both of us remind you that all roads do lead to a rural route. See you Monday. If you haven't watched The Stand at Paxton County, I strongly suggest you do that this weekend on Netflix. Check it out. The Stand at Paxton County. I want to hear what you think.